Hidden Gems, Episode 14, A Gathering of Friends. Welcome to Hidden Gems, a board game podcast where we review unusual, forgotten, and underappreciated board games. We're your hosts. My name is Chris. I'm Jason. And I'm Cameron. Thanks for listening to our show. All right. Welcome back, Jason. Yeah, welcome back, Jason. It's been a long time since we've had you around this table. I know. It feels good to be back, but it has been a while. I feel like we did the Dads on a Map episode, which was a lot of fun, but mm-hmm. I was out of town before that, so I missed out. And we did Dads on a Map remotely. We weren't together when that's we right. that's recorded right. that. That's we right. recorded it Dads on a Map style. That's right. <laughs> Only in the same state. <laughs> well, speaking of being out of the state, I think I mentioned it in the last episode, we did get back from Maine. That's why I was out of the last episode, mm-hmm. and I thought I'd talk about that a little bit. Don't want to belabor it. I know Chris got to beat me to the got there first and talked about the, <laughs> talked about Thunder. his trip. A bit he just did my... all the same things that I did already, anyways. <laughs> well, we did. That's the thing. So, yeah, we except did for actually... the beehive. That's true. I was going to talk about the beehive. We did spend a little bit more time in Acadia than I think you guys did. Yeah, we got to do some really awesome hikes while we were there. One by the name of the Beehive, which mm-hmm. is a famous trail in Acadia, I guess. We were a little skeptical of the amount of exposure and narrow ledges that was going to be there. We decided the youngest probably wasn't a good fit for him. But I got my two oldest up there, and they had a blast. It was one of the coolest hikes I think I've ever done, and I've done a lot of hikes. The pictures were impressive. Yeah. yeah. Kids haven't stopped talking about it since then. Obviously, <laughs> if you go on this hike, you are the best judge of whether or not your kids can handle something like this. But our kids haven't stopped talking about it since then. My we kids had- pump, punked out. They weren't having it. You could see the beehive from yeah. the coastline. I was like, hey, wow. look up there. You can see them up there. They're on that beehive trail. And they were like, nope. I could not get them to go up there. None I tried. Not a one. Wow. From yeah. a distance, you just see these little ants crawling yep. up the side of the cliff. And it does look a little intimidating. No rails, no ropes. Yeah, it looks kind of crazy Ooh. from down low. Yeah, very cool, though. We had a blast while we were up there. Made some good memories. So that's what I've been up to. What have you been up to, Chris? Yeah, a lot of fun things going on lately with the family. I think I've talked about this before on this podcast, but all my kids, specifically my oldest son and my youngest son, are esports assassins. (laughs) So they play competitive esports. They're really into it. And my youngest son, he plays on a competitive Fortnite team. Mm. He's eight years old, and he plays in a league called XP League, and his team qualified for the North American Finals. That's amazing. Yeah. Sounds impressive. Which, yeah, and it was. You would think, well, with an eight-year-old, how big could it be but there were teams from canada at this thing it just so happened that it was hosted in raleigh because the ceo of the company lives here but teams flew in from canada california texas wisconsin all over the country you had to be in the top 16 teams to make the pool and they made the cut and what's extra impressive about this and i have to brag a little bit about it is the age range is 8 to 15 okay (laughs) And so Hayes is eight, right? Right, barely. And most of the kids on his team are like 10, 11, 12. Well, these other teams are like 14 and 15 year old kids. Okay, like as old as you can be, basically, yeah. right? He's just right smoking them. <laughs> they played great. So they came in seventh out of 16. Okay. In North America. That's great. That's not bad. Played really well. As a matter of fact, in the final match, they had a crowd around them because they made it in the final three. You wow. know, and again, they're playing like 15-year-old kids, and here's yeah. these little tiny kids <laughs> holding their own. They played amazing. It was a great experience. Jay at XP League, they did an awesome job. It had a professional feel to it. Okay. The lights were down. It right. was like dark in there, and there were strobes and lights. The colors and on the PCs Colors. And everything everything yeah. was lit up. The monitors were glowing. They had professional commentators, announcers. It was streaming on Twitch. They were doing play-by-play as yeah. the game was going on. 
just really cool to see for him to experience to experience it with him just a fun feeling and it just made me miss conventions it was a convention Mm -hmm. slash tournament Mm -hmm. carolina game summit had all these pcs and consoles set up and all this merch and funkos and all kinds of nerdy crap just all over the place vendors awesome time really enjoyed it the super mario 3 tournament in in the wizard in the wizard yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm actually going to talk about the wizard at some point because i watched it with my kids and i'm going to save it but i have strong feelings about the wizard it's one of my favorite movies growing up but yeah it's kind of like that had a great time that's awesome well we hit a major milestone recently yes we did talk about that We did hit a major milestone. So as of August 15th, we've crossed 5,000 downloads for our podcast, which huge. I will say we are humbled by the level of support that we've received from all of our listeners out there, whether it's reviews, participation in the guild, just encouragements over social media or email, or even just listening on a regular basis. We really value you guys. It means a ton to us. It's what keeps us going. So yeah, we just wanted to really say a big thank you to everybody. Yeah, Huge thanks everybody. Thanks. Yeah, I have to admit, total honesty, I'm really just floored at where we are at this point. I remember when we first started talking before we recorded our first episode, and I think I said something along the lines of, don't expect anything really until yeah. like Christmas. Right. That was really what I was expecting is to be in the dungeon, nobody knowing about <laughs> us, yeah. you know, not expecting to be talked about at all and maybe ever, but at least not until Christmas. And it's funny to find us on Apple Podcasts about two or three months ago. If you typed in board games, you could not find yeah, us. You had to enter up. the name of our podcast like to the letter. Exactly. Uh, Hidden Gems colon a board game podcast. People were like, we can't find your podcast on Apple Podcasts. I was like, you have to you type it in exactly yeah. <laughs> or you won't find us. But as it stands now, and it's not like I check this every day, yeah. but... Um, <laughs> When you search board games in Apple Podcasts, we show up. We show up in the top 10 recommended, mm-hmm. and we have consistently for like the last three or four weeks up there with like Dice Tower, yeah. Shut Up and Sit Down. I don't know how their algorithms work, sure. and I'm certainly not implying that we're more popular than them, but just the fact that when you search board games, we come up is mind-blowing it's to me. It's and huge. it's because of the listeners, yeah, right? Yeah, it's because, it's because yeah. of you. It's because of you all. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, it's so awesome. Yeah, so in light of that milestone... Cameron, I think you were going to share another surprise that we have coming up. Yeah, we've got an exciting announcement. So as you guys know, we've talked about some of the behind the scenes things of creating a podcast. And as much as we absolutely love creating this show, there's plenty of costs associated with that. Mm -hmm. Things like software subscriptions and website fees and all sorts of things like that, that we've been happy to bootstrap out of our pockets. But since we have such a base of support, we figured maybe it's worth an ask to our listeners to see if they would like to help support the show along with us. And so because of that, we've actually created a Patreon page. That'll be patreon.com slash hidden gems podcast. What we're going to do just to start out, if you'd like to show your support, you can do so at the $5 per month level. We certainly expect to expand on that as the show goes on, as Mm -hmm. we sort of get our ideas in order about what other types of offerings that we could create, maybe expand that to other tiers. Things like we could do t-shirts, we could do merch, you could do something like online plays. Yeah, like online plays on some type of basis. We want to hear from you guys. Yeah. We want to hear what would be of value to our listeners yeah. to add to these tiers. Yeah, we really just wanted to get it up and see what kind of response that it got. But as Cameron alluded to, we we're definitely considering breaking it up into different tiers and having those different reward levels. But we really want to know what you guys want as a listener base, what you would like to see, things like that. Yeah, know that every little bit counts, right? We, yeah. I think we mentioned this in the pilot episode. We never started this podcast to make money off of nope. it. 
But like Cameron said, in terms of going towards regular costs and even just increasing the production value of our show, right, the right, quality, whether, whether it's equipment or what have you, right? So every little bit counts and we really appreciate everything you guys do. Yeah. yeah. Once again, if that's you, if you're one of our listeners out there that loves what we're doing, that looks forward to episodes dropping, and you want to show your support for the Hidden Gems podcast, just jump over to patreon.com slash hidden gems podcast, join the $5 per month tier and pitch your ideas to us. Send us an email, reach out to us on Instagram. I think we're going to have a thread on the BGG Guild specifically for formulating our ideas because we really do want to craft this to be something that can additionally serve you, our listeners, because that's the whole reason yep. that this podcast exists. That's why because we do Because we it. have this community and we want to make it better. In light of all that, we actually have another kind of More. fun announcement. But wait, there's more. more. Yeah, that's right. Chris, you want to talk about that? (laughs) Yeah. So a lot of exciting news going on in the podcast right now, for sure. One more little bit of information we wanted to share is, you know that we plug Noble Knight quite a bit on this show. We're big fans of Noble Knight, mostly because they're one of the few online retailers who actually offer these games that we talk about where you can actually acquire them outside of the BGG marketplace, right? Mm -hmm. And Chris's shelves. And in my shelves, which if they're for sale, Bill's probably already bought them anyways. They're probably bad. You don't want them anyway. But um, yeah, so we reached out to Noble Knight because, you know, we were thinking we mention them all the time, right? It just makes sense. Hey, would you like to enter into a partnership with us or work out some of agreement? And we heard back from them and they agreed to that. So we're not technically sponsored, but we are in kind of like a partnership early phase with them where they've offered us a discount code. If you go to their site and purchase a game on Noble Knight and you enter GEMS21 into the coupon code field, so GEMS21, you'll get 10% off of any order that's over $10. It's exciting. Seems like a small thing, but it's a big thing for us, right? And of course, thanks to Noble Knight for doing what they do well. We have this in common with them where we're looking for these games and they happen to be the folks that have them. Yeah, and they've been super nice, excited about where this can go. For sure. Yeah, really exciting. Well, moving back into kind of the normal stream of things, we have our cocktail this week. Chris, why don't you tell us about it? Yeah. Depending on how long you've been in board games or your knowledge about board games, the title may or may not have made sense to you, and that's okay if it didn't. But the title is definitely a hint at what we're going to be talking about today, and that's going to be games by Alan R. Moon. So every year, Alan Moon runs a self-run convention called The Gathering of Friends, and so I thought it would be fun to name this one A Gathering of Friends Mm -hmm. in honor of him. We're going to be talking about his games today. And since we're talking about Alan Moon, today's featured cocktail is The Cosmonaut. All right, yeah. A little bit of a space theme here. I'm guessing vodka. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) definitely. Vodka. It's a simple cocktail. So one and a half ounces of vodka, an ounce of lime juice, Three quarters of an ounce of ginger liqueur, Canton's ginger liqueur, and then a dash of bitters. Yeah. Very straightforward. And it's a pretty strong drink. You have too many of these, you'll be flying over the moon. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> take it easy on this one, but it is a pretty good one for so sure. I shouldn't have drank two thirds of mine already. Yeah. Mine is gone. It is a caveat. <laughs> if you're recording a podcast, it's okay to press the gas a little bit. <laughs> That's right. You need to relax. That's right. Loosen up. <laughs> All right, so before we get into the games, I thought it would be fun to talk a little bit about Alan Moon. He's got a really interesting history that I think people would like to hear about, so we're going to talk a little bit about him as a designer and a person. So Alan Moon has been designing games for a long time. Any guesses at what his BGG ID is? So we've talked about this before. When things are entered into the BGG database, they're given an ID based on when they're entered in. Any guess? Just Hmm. Guesses. Less, less than 20. Let's see who gets the closest. I was going to say 26. 
Okay. I said less than twenty. Well, you have to I give have to, a number. Uh, <laughs> you gonna do twenty five? You gonna do prices or yeah, prices? Right? <laughs> Eighteen. That's probably 18. too low. Nine. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm yeah. Wrong. Like I said, he has been designing games for quite a while, so he's number nine in BGG. So Alan Moon, interestingly, was born in Southampton, England, but he moved to the United States at a very young age. He actually grew up in New Jersey. His okay. father was a librarian, and he took a job at a library first in Canada and then actually moved to New Jersey, where he's pretty much lived in that New England area ever since. One of Alan's biggest influences on his gaming and his evolution, I guess, as a designer, is very much based on his childhood. So he said that every Sunday, and I think this is really cool, he and his family, without fail, every Sunday had a family day where in the morning they would go play miniature golf or go bowling, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then in the evening they would come home and they would play games. Monopoly, sorry, classic type games. Risk was one that he mentioned. But interestingly, I got a kick out of this. He said that his family played a lot of Oh Hell, oh, which I've mentioned this yeah, before yeah, yeah. because that is my family game. Yeah. But we don't call it Oh Hell, we call it Ups and Downs, yeah. also known as Opashaw. So apparently they played that a ton, and that actually influenced a lot of his card game designs, Okay, interestingly. Hmm. As he got older, once he got to his 20s, he actually served in the Air Force. So he's a veteran during the Vietnam War, actually. Cool. He went to King College, he majored in English and theater, and then he got involved during that time with a group known as the Jersey War Gamers. And the Jersey Wargamers had apparently strong ties to Avalon Hill. So he started working for Avalon Hill, participated in their magazine, and came out with his first published design, Black Spy, which is a card game. Have you guys played Black Spy? I've heard of it. I haven't played it. I have it. I've played it. And it's a pretty solid trick-taking game. Again, with the background in Oh Hell, I can see where that comes from. After Black Spy, he decided that he wanted to try to go into board game publishing and design full-time. And again... This is just a really cool story, and I think you can see this as very inspirational, whether you're a board game designer or or whatever you're trying to do in life. So from 1981 to 1996, he struggled and tried to gain notoriety in board game circles. He started his own board game company, White Wind Incorporated, and put a lot of money into that company in an attempt to become recognized as a designer, and it went nowhere. He mm. said that he was broke, actually in debt, because mm. he spent a lot of money to publish these games that nobody was buying. Right. Mm. He was waiting tables to make ends meet. He said that it was a very difficult period for him. He just thought he wasn't going to make it, and he had all this debt, and he didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. Okay. But then one day, randomly, the German board game company Amigo approached him and asked him if he wanted to rework his game Elfin Roads. Okay. Okay. So he actually had several solid designs that just weren't getting recognized. Elfin Roads was one. Santa Fe, which okay. went on to be Santa Fe Rails, which we've reviewed on this channel. Yeah. yeah. Airlines, which became Union Pacific, which turned into Airlines Europe. So he had designs, but then Amigo recognized him, said, hey, let's rework it. He changed it into Elfin Land, and that won the Spiel des Jahres in 1998. Wow. And then from there, the floodgates like opened. We were We've talking talk- about mm-hmm. the effect of winning the Spiel. Yes, it is a game changer. So you win the Spiel des Jahres, and it just opens up for you. And that's when all those older designs started to get more recognized, okay. and it just blew up from there. A cool. game changer. A game changer, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> So after that came Capital, San Marco, the 10 Days In series, and then ultimately the one that would really change his life. He's set for life on this game, sure. Ticket to Ride. Yeah. 
Yeah. So another cool story is he said that he was taking a walk one night in Beverly, Massachusetts, along the coast. And he said that the idea of Ticket to Ride just came to him wow. suddenly. Like he had a moment of just total clarity. Have you, has that ever happened to y'all? That, that has oh, actually yeah. happened to me yeah. before. For sure. Yeah. Back in the day when I used to write music. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've had a few occasions like that where it's just like, boom. Yeah. The whole song done in like a couple of hours. It feels like it's happened to me sometimes, but then I usually think about it a little bit longer. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It's I'm Jason like, overthinking yes, yeah. This is awesome. And then I think about it for five minutes and I'm like, nah. You know, to be honest, this podcast was kind of that way. Really? To be quite honest. I was driving you back in driving, the car yeah. from Kansas. I was bored because right. we'd been driving for hours. <laughs> And my mind was wandering, and it just kind of came to me. It's like a moment of clarity about like what we could do, what I thought it would look like, how yeah. it would go, and it just kind of went. You Did know, you hear voices? I, maybe <laughs> Talia's voice was it, was it? Was it the voice of your four children in the car? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, he said that he went home, he designed the prototype that night, and he said that it was ninety to ninety-five percent complete at that point. Wow! So most board game designers, you know, have to tweak and play test. Sure. And he said from that moment, he had to change very little. Didn't it was really that clear much. to him. Wow! That it was going to go that way. And the rest is history. The royalties he earns on Ticket to Ride every quarter, he says they can do whatever they want to do now, he and his wife. That's amazing. His wife is a lawyer, so I'm sure she does well. But yeah, he does great on Ticket to Ride. <laughs> go figure. Cool. So yeah, very cool. One other thing I always like to do this, things that he's interested in. So his interests include going on cruises, reading, NASCAR. Okay. Go figure. I can appreciate that, living in North Carolina. Model railroading weightlifting and singing so an interesting fact about him his dream was actually to become a recording artist and in 1998 as a gift to himself for winning the spill de yaras (laughs) he recorded a cd of country music which he gave to his family and friends wow so somewhere floating out there are alan moon country music cds that somebody owns well you said he went to school for the arts so i guess it kind of makes sense theater that and english that background yeah yeah it's a very diverse set of hobbies yes very much so i can feel that yeah a yeah lot of different hobbies. you can appreciate that <laughs> yeah. he's he's kind of a renaissance man kind of like you cameron this all right is, i'll take it yeah yeah that's that's very much you for sure <laughs> so yeah a little bit of background on alan moon things you may not have known that's fun Some yeah fun fact i always yeah. love doing these bios it's fun i mean it's not airline spoons but True. Making Way, the weightlifting CD. and country music. Yeah. yeah. Not, not, and NASCAR. Yeah. <laughs> and model trains. And model trains. All right. Well, let's get into the games. Let's do it. The Mongolian Gobi, an expansive zone of desert, occupies almost one-third of Mongolia's vast territory. The Gobi is often imagined to be a place of unbearable heat and lifeless sand dunes, similar to the inhospitable and uninhabitable Sahara Desert. However, the reality is quite the reverse. The Great Mongolian Gobi has high mountains, sand dunes, steppe lands, a rich animal kingdom including wild horses and camels, and beautiful oases which support life with their precious water supplies. The oases of the Gobi have been inhabited since ancient times by nobles, aristocrats, merchants, monks, and herders, all trying to find their place in the social structure of this great land. You are the head of a family, intent on becoming the most powerful in the land. Use your resources wisely to take control of fertile steppe lands to raise horses, which will bring prestige and honor. 
Build uvus filled with enchanted stones to pour the blessings of luck into your life. Raise a caravan of camels to move your commodities to other areas of the land, bringing unmeasured wealth upon you. Take control of beautiful oases fed by life-giving water wells to improve the quality of life for you and your family. The player with the most points at the end of the game will be anointed the noble of the oasis. I feel like you just read us an encyclopedia article. <laughs> <laughs> that might have been the longest flavor text oh. we've done yet. How do we get people to play this game? <laughs> We're going to have to put some really exciting music in that one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Oasis, published in 2004 by Schmidt Spiele and Uberplay. The time of this recording, its BGG ranking is 1,803. Okay. Designer, obviously, as we mentioned, Alan R. Moon. How did I hear about this one? So, Tom Vassell. Surprise, surprise. Did a top 10 list, as he loves to do. Tom loves his top 10 list. He did a top 10 Alan Moon games a few years ago. And this one was on that list. That's why I picked it up. It was actually number six on that list. Kind of in the middle. Interestingly, a game that we're going to be recording a little bit later, Andromeda, was also on that list. Okay. Number nine. Will it be better? We'll see. Mm. That's where I heard about it. I also want to mention that this game was also recommended by one of our guild members, Snoozefest. All right. Uh, Ravindra asked that we review this one. So this one's for you, Ravindra. All right. So brief rule summary. Boiled down to its simplest elements, Oasis is really a trading game with area control. Mm-hmm. That's really what it is. Very straightforward. The way the board is set up is it's divided into three areas or land masses that are divided up into a grid of squares. And within each of those three land masses, you have desert areas, you have green oasis areas, and you have rocky areas. In the intersection between those three land masses runs a path. This is the camel path where you're going to be placing your camels in the game. So as you are acquiring terrain types in this game, you're going to be placing those square chits into those land masses, building deserts, building oases that you control in an attempt to gain control of as large of an area as possible to score as many points as possible. That's the general idea. In addition to the board, each player starts with a deck of five cards face down that is hidden to them. Okay, So you don't know what the composition of your deck is, and that's very important. At the start of the game, each player is going to be randomly assigned a number which designate where they fall in turn order. And turn order is very important in this game. So if you're in the first position, you will begin by making an offering for trade. The way this works is you'll flip over the top card of the deck and you have an option. You can either stop there and make that card, whatever's printed on that card, as part of your offer. Or you can continue. If you stop... You'll draw two cards from the deck, and you'll put them on the bottom of your deck, adding to your card deck. If you decide not to stop, you'll flip a second card, increasing the strength of your bid. But if you do that, you'll only add one card to the bottom of your deck for future rounds. If you flip over three cards, which is the maximum number that you can flip over, you're attempting to make a very strong offer. However, if you do that, you add no cards to the bottom of your deck. So remember, I said that you start with five cards in your deck. So if you start by flipping three, at most in the next round, you'll be able to offer two. Mm -hmm. So the game has a built-in mechanism to pump the brakes on you. You can't just offer three every time. Mm -hmm. I think that's important to understand. 
So why are we making these offers? Well, printed on the card, there are different things that people will want. So you'll either take cards that will allow you to add terrain tiles to the board, or you'll take cards that will give you multiplier chits that add to your score. So let me explain how that works. So at the end of the game, if I control 10 green oasis tiles between all of my areas on the board, and I acquired two green multiplier chits, I'll get 10 times two 20 points. If I was able to get four multiplier chits based on cards that I acquired for that terrain type, I would get 40 points. So you can see how you want to try to get the multipliers, but also the tiles that give you territory control. So why do you want to make a strong offer? Two main reasons why you would want to do that. One is if your offer is picked by the person who is in first position, you will get to do a bonus action at the end of your turn where you'll get to add a terrain type to the board for free or a camel to the path for free. In addition, in the next round, you get to pick first of all the lots of cards that are available for purchase. I don't think I did a good job explaining this, so just let me reiterate. We'll go in turn order. Everybody will flip cards for offer, first, second, third, fourth position. Then once all the cards are flipped, whoever's in first gets first choice of all those cards that are available to be taken. You just can't take your own cards. So the game will go around and around like that until one of the piles is exhausted. At that point, you'll total up your scores and whoever has the highest score wins. It's a very simple game. It's a little tricky to explain. I actually stumbled multiple times. And you're not going to know that because I edited it all out. <laughs> <laughs> but it was hard to explain. It's, it's a very visual game. It's very visual and it's very unique. There's a lot to the turn order switching and bidding. Yes, and hopefully as we talk through our discussion, it will make more sense what we're getting at mm -hmm. here. Hey folks, this is Chris in the post-production editing bay. I was listening to my rules explanation of Oasis, and I realized that I didn't do a very good job at explaining a very critical point of the game, and I just want to make sure this is clear. Otherwise, this review won't make any sense to you all. So regarding turn order, let's say we're dealing in a four-player game. At the start of the game, everybody will be dealt four turn order tokens, one, two, three, four. In that order, people will make their offers, and then in that order, people will select offers. The thing I don't think I made very clear, the player that has the number one token, he selects first from the three offers of the other players present at the table. Whoever he chooses, he hands that number one player marker to that player, and that player will go first in the next round. Then the person with the two marker will select from the offers remaining at the table, and then they will give that number two marker to the person that they selected. So now that person will go second in the next round, and so on and so on. And that's how it will work every round. Just wanted to make that clear. All right, let's get on with the rest of the review. So as I've alluded to, there's not a whole lot to this game. You're controlling areas on the board. You're trying to get as big of areas as possible while also trying to get those multipliers to maximize your points. The central mechanism, however, is that card flip mechanism. You're flipping a card. You're trying to decide, am I going to stop here or am I going to flip another card? That's really the game. <laughs> How do you guys feel about that mechanism? Do you feel like that that mechanism is strong enough to hold this game up as a game that you find to be a good game? What did you feel about it? Yeah, so this actually reminded me a lot of Medici when we played mm. it. It has a similar feel of the, how many cards am I going to flip? I think the limit is even three in Medici as well. It's a little bit different in this game in that what you're flipping is your own personal pile and it's your bid. It's not something that you can choose to bid for or right. choose not to bid for. It's what you have on offer. It's what you're giving your opponents. Right. Yeah. 
I found it interesting, that choice of, well, do I try to make this stronger and forfeit being able to add more cards to my deck, which is really important in this game. If you get strapped for cards in this game, Mm -hmm. you're in trouble because it's hard to crawl back from that. I did struggle a little bit, I think, with the randomness of it because there were times when I would flip three cards over thinking I'm going to make a really strong play right now. And if you just don't flip over the right three cards, you could still end up coming in third or fourth place in turn order based on how people choose cards. So... I don't know. I was a little on the fence with it. I struggled with it mm-hmm. a bit. It's a, definitely an interesting mechanic that I don't think I've seen anywhere else before. Despite the similarity to Medici, it plays very differently because it's your own bid. Sure. Yeah, so I'm not going to lie. <laughs> this mechanic threw me in my mm. first play of this game. Uh, I, I remember. I was very, very frustrated. Particularly, I think, because the sense of randomness. You flip over that card and you're just like, I don't know if I should flip over another one. I didn't have any control about what I just turned over. So you just flip the first one, you look at it, and you go, all right, do I think it's enough? If you're later in the turn order, it's a little bit easier to assess whether or not you should flip more over. You know what you have to be better than. You need to get to the front of the line because that bonus... Mm-hmm. Of, of getting selected at first and getting first pick is so valuable in this game. Getting that first turn marker is critical in this yeah. game. The biggest mistake that I see people make in this game, and I think it was the thing that you were having a hard time with in your first play, your deck is very lean, yeah. especially early. And I find that people become very concerned about getting low on cards, so they just are like, I'll just offer one card, or I'll just offer two cards. And they find themselves hovering in this middling area where they're like second or third, sometimes fourth, but they're never coming in first. You can't win that way. Yeah. You have to put it all out there a couple of times and make a strong bid to try to get the attention of whoever's in first to get that token because you want that bonus action. But in my opinion, even more importantly than that, you get first pick next round. Right. Because you have to try to ensure for yourself that you get the things that you need. Yep. And the only way to do that is to be in first. Right. If they come up. Yeah. Right. I would argue that you cannot win this game without at least one or more times oh, no way. being in the front. I don't think it's possible. I would say that's at the core of the game is you figuring out what is it going to take with the cards that I'm able to turn over. And that's the thing is you don't have any control over what cards you're going to turn over. And, nope. and, and that it's a blind I think, draw can be punishing depending on how things go for you. We've seen people win first or second by a single card flip. It doesn't always work out for you, but that's where you have to make that calculated decision. Is it time to go for it? Yeah. I don't know that I would go so far as to say this is turn order of the game, like Gypsy King that we talked about <laughs> you know, a couple episodes ago, but turn order is crucial in yeah. this game, as is understanding how to use it, mm-hmm. I think. It's not just get into first as many times as you can. It's also, what do I do when I'm stuck in second? What do I do when I've fallen into fourth? What types of bids do I make when I'm in first? What I think I've struggled with in thinking through this review, though, is whether or not once you figure that out, is it formulaic? Because it feels like we sort of started settling in on some guidelines in terms of how you play in certain positions. Or a groupthink, maybe. Maybe it was groupthink. Sure. But, you know, when you're in first place making an offer of one, right? One card. Because you... Because you, you can't, can't pick yourself. Yeah, you can't pick yourself, so you're not going to be in first again. It felt to me like I kind of got into this rhythm of, okay, make a strong play, get into first, make a weak play, drop back down to fourth, have that advantage of going last in turn order to see what other people were throwing out there, make a strong bid, get back into first. And then it just kind of becomes a game of hand management of making sure you don't run out of cards. 
But I don't know. I'm interested to hear you guys' thoughts on it. I think my immediate reaction is that's early game. I think how you play shifts over the course of the game. When you get into later game, it becomes much more important to continue to be able to get precisely what you need. It's not as important earlier on whether you go from first to fourth. That is a fine pattern. But when you get later in the game, I think you may want to be bidding more if you can to get a higher rank so that you can secure those multipliers. And I think we should note your multiplier chits are hidden. Right. Once you acquire them, you do not have to show them to anybody else. So you can have other players have a general feeling or a general idea of how many they think. I mean, sometimes if you're Chris, you just memorize exactly how many Ben picked up and then call it out at the table, you know? <laughs> I was going to say, unless you're Ben and you pick up four rock tokens like in the first two turns and then telegraph to everybody exactly target, what you're going for. Target on so, but, yeah. but, it, but I think that's an important element, right? The fact that they're hidden because it makes it a little bit more difficult to track where your opponents actually are. And that can make a difference. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I do consider that to be one of the strengths of the game is keeping up with what people want in this game. I think that is very, very critical. Cameron, if I know that you really want rock multipliers, you're really going all on rocks. a giant rock pad out there. And I flip over a double rock multiplier, I'm just going to stop. Yeah, why flip over? Right, why flip over more, right? I don't really need to, right? I can conserve my deck. I know what you want. But even more important, I think in the memorization element of this game and tracking what people are collecting from a multiplier chip standpoint is the necessity of playing defensively. Mm. And I think this is something that we still didn't really master and we're grasping more, but Mm -hmm. was still elusive. I am of the opinion that it is just as important, if not more important in certain situations to take an offering that might even be bad for you just to not allow somebody to have it. Because there are certain offerings that if somebody gets them, it can just be over, Mm. right? The point scoring in this game can be hugely disproportionate. Yeah, yeah. You can have people in the 70s and you can have people in the 170s. Because if you just let somebody pick up those multipliers uninhibited, they're just going to rake it in. And so it's contingent on the people at the table to recognize that and be like, well, I really want that, but... Bill can't have that, right, right. and I'm going to take it. Did, did he? Did it? Bill have like 16 of the horses yes. at one point. <laughs> so we weren't paying attention. Right, it was our fault. Yeah, he had like 10 desert spaces on the board, but he had like 11 desert multipliers. Yeah. He scored 110 points right. on one scoring. Yeah, it can happen. Big. Shifting in the direction of cons, we talk about randomness on this podcast, I think, quite a lot because it's not our favorite mechanism. There's definitely, I think, two layers of randomness to this game that that can be pretty frustrating if things just come up poorly for you and and they're they are related to the unknowns of those player decks the first is when you're flipping cards Mm -hmm. you really could just not get what you need and have to flip more just to compete with others while others can get away with like i said that single flip and they just drop a multiplier and it's like what you know someone wants yeah flipping three cards and not getting it yeah it's it's painful it can really set you real painful yeah it can really set you back and the the second one i think is you can get stuck with no options that are really good for you when you actually have a chance to go first, right? So it's like, I played great last round, it's my first time, and then I flip over cards, and then everyone else's deck comes up dry. And you're just like, oh, well, what pile of junk do I want, right? I think that can kind of bite you, and we've seen that happen a few times. Those were my two biggest negatives as well. The first one is where picking your battles is important in terms of your deck not performing the way that you want. If you're in fourth and you think you can beat what's out there, if you flip another card, maybe you go for it. 
But if you flip something you know is a dud for the lead player and only have one more card, like it might not be worth it for you. Yeah, just let it go. And just, yeah, just take the extra card and build up for the next round. Right. So you have to play this game of setting yourself up for success and strength in future rounds and not just worry about the current round. I think this game forces you to think rounds in advance like that. Yeah, I agree with that. Those were my two biggest cons as well. You took them right out of my mouth, so I wow. won't rehash them. I mean, those were it. Um, it makes me feel smart when I <laughs> guess what you're thinking. It's yeah. the same for me, too, if that makes you feel any better. <laughs> yeah, that can be really frustrating to work to get in the first. And this happened to me one game. Yeah. Literally, I had a lot of green tiles, and I was like, I just need green multipliers. I worked myself into first position several times that game, and it never came. Yeah. I think that's an outlier. I think that's unusual. Yeah. I managed to get a couple, but I should have been able to get more. And just by the randomness of the card flips, they weren't coming up. But again, I really do feel like that that's more fringe. And the reason I think that is because there are so many rounds in this game. Yeah. The cards flip so many times. Mm -hmm. I kind of think of it as Memoir 44, which is a totally different game. But the point I'm making is Memoir 44 is very lucky with dice rolls. Are you going to roll hits? Are you going to roll misses? And it can be seen as very lucky. However, I'm of the opinion that the dice get rolled so many times in Memoir 44 that it kind of balances out. Yeah. And I feel like that's similar here. Yeah, you can get really unlucky in the first position once, maybe twice, but the cards flip so many times that it will usually balance out. That was usually my experience in most of my plays, but it is a risk. Yeah. One other thing, we didn't hit it in the rules, but there is a card that can come up that's not an area tile and it's not a multiplier. It's the three card. I think it's an important thing to at least mention mm -hmm. because there is this pain management of how thin your deck is getting by way of how many cards you're having to flip over. If you can pick up that one in sort of a meh round, like where you're, you know you're not going to win out a lot, but like you can pick up something because you're in third or whatever... Can help it's you a, a lot pretty later. powerful card because you're going to get three cards added to your deck even though you just flipped over however many cards you flipped yeah. over. So, so you just flipped one, you're actually putting five in correct. your deck. Right? Yeah, so it can be yep. a source of some pain relief. Now, it can still backfire. Just don't take all of them. <laughs> like Jason I did. Jason had like 12 cards in the sand and he, was, and he was still like, did I'm poorly. set for the rest yeah. of the game. <laughs> and and he had no presence on the board. And then all of my cards were not the right flips that I needed. <laughs> well, should we move on to final thoughts then? Do you want to go first, Jason? Yeah, I did enjoy the card flipping aspect of this game to a point. I thought that it made for interesting decisions, but I did really struggle with the randomness of those card flips. Maybe it's because I feel like I was impacted by that maybe a little bit more than I wanted to be in certain plays. I do agree with you, Chris. I think that over time it does settle out. So I wouldn't put that as a, a strong negative against the game if the rest of it sounds interesting to you. Just... This game seemed more desert than Oasis to me. <laughs> so poetic. He's been waiting to say that yeah. the whole review. I know. I saved that one up. Not that theme is everything in a game. Next episode, we're going to be doing abstract games, which are what soulless, theme? themeless games. <laughs> but nothing in this game grabbed me. I think I've mentioned that the past couple times in reviews, and so I don't want that to always be the core determining factor in a game because games can be good in their own right without having to have a theme or some magic trick to them. But something in the randomness to the bidding of this game and the fact that it seemed a little formulaic to me made me settle on a three. It's not a bad game, but it's not one that I think I would be super excited or come into game night like, oh man, let's play Oasis. I'm so excited to play this. <laughs> I think it's a good game. I was between a three and a four, if I'm honest, but settle on a three. Fair enough. Yeah. So I ended up enjoying this game. 
my first play was really frustrating. I think I you kept, were a mess. Yeah, I, I think I kept <laughs> wanting to make Oasis something that it just was not. I was frustrated by not being able to choose the cards I wanted to play. In subsequent plays, I think I understood the game more and realized that it's less about the actual cards and more about managing your card count so that you can play more cards when you need to win the bid for first and are likely to do so if you can flip that one more card. Mm -hmm. You have to get chosen first at least sometimes in order to win this game. The first player bonus is just crucial. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed Oasis once I understood how to play. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm giving Oasis a five. Whoa. Wow. I think people should try this game and would be happy to play it when it hits the table. Dang. That's awesome. To, like circle it back around, right? Yeah, dude. I'm actually really pumped to hear that just because I remember the first time you played it, you looked like you were having a miserable time. I was time. furious. But I could tell <laughs> so in your second game, you had that light bulb moment. Yeah. You actually won that game. Yeah, I did. And I could see the light turn on for you. I was like, Cameron's got it now. And you just rolled us. Yeah, I stopped trying to force Oasis into this mold of a game that I wanted it to be. That was how I felt. It was like, no, I'm just going to play the game that's here and just go for it. Yeah, that's awesome. So Oasis really hits a sweet spot for me these days in kind of games that I like now. And I'm really enjoying at this moment in my game career. (laughs) Right? Simple rules, easy to play, but good decisions. How many cards do I flip? Whose set should I take? Should I take this set so that this person can't have it? Where do I place my tiles? Good decisions, but very simple rule set. I also like the fact, and we didn't really say this in the rule, but I think it's interesting to point out that everything you gain in this game, you got because somebody else gave it to you. Mm. If you won the game, it's because your opponents gave you what you (laughs) needed to win the game. That's a good observation. And so because of that... You have to constantly be paying attention to what people are doing. Mm -hmm. And I liked that in this game. If you're just in your own world and you're not keeping up with what Cameron or Bill or Jace is doing, you will get crushed in this game. (laughs) Like I said, you can get beat by 100 points in this game. Easy. Because of the way that it scores. But I like that. I get what Jason is saying about the randomness with the card flips. And it could sometimes feel formulaic. Although, I I will say in my plays, I didn't feel like you just bounced back and forth between first and fourth, first and fourth, first and fourth. There was some nuance there. Enough to keep me interested. So, for me, I think it's a good game. It's a nice family-style game. So, for that reason, we give it a four. I think it's a good game. I'm going to keep it. All right. All right. Well, for folks out there who are listening, who are interested because of our thrilling reviews we just (laughs) provided, where could we find Oasis? Well, Cameron... This game is in stock at Noble Knight. There it is. (laughs) For $34, actually. So if you would like to pick up a copy of this on Noble Knight, you can do so. Enter the code GEMS21. Get 10% off. Oh, yeah. We'll try not to plug it every time, but we have to say it a few times. It's just so cool. (laughs) Let's do it at least the first time. (laughs) That's right. But in all honesty, we would really appreciate it. It helps us, and it helps Noble Knight a lot. And so if this sounds interesting, you want to give it a try? Think about picking it up through Noble Knight. It's also available on the BGG Marketplace. 27 copies available there as well. So readily available if you want. Very cool. That's our thoughts on Oasis. The king has invited you to his castle for breakfast. During the feast, the players will take portions of various dishes from the table to eat. As a good host, the king will serve his guests before taking any portion from each course. From time to time, his pet dragon, Emerald, will steal some food from his master. Of course, it is rude for a player to have more of a dish than the king. 
So players must be careful not to be too greedy. In the end, the winner is the player who gets the most to eat of the things the king likes best without eating more than the king eats of any dish. <laughs> nice. So the, the dragon's name is Emerald? I guess it does, so. It does have a name, yeah. Is that based on the game? Is there a connection there? I don't know. Emerald, you know we the dragon game? Yeah, I like that game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Is that Alan Moon? No, I think it's Rudiger Dorn, but they're around the same time period. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, there might be a connection. A connection. Might have to do some investigative journalism. <laughs> <laughs> or the guild will just tell me. I'm sure Daryl already knows. Right. All right, King's Breakfast. I'm going to do my best to explain this uber-complicated game. Are you ready? <laughs> All right. Published in 2003 by 999 Games, Abacus Spiele and Rio Grande Games, designed, of course, by Alan R. Moon, along with Aaron Weisblum, mm. and currently ranked on BGG 3,543. In this game, players are trying to get the most portions of various dishes served by the king, but they have to be careful not to get more than the king, because if they do, those dishes will count for nothing. So the deck of cards that players are selecting from contains seven different dish types. For example, ham, cake, cheese, wine, bread, etc., each round, a number of cards is going to be dealt out to the table by the dealer or the chef two times the number of players, and any cards that are of the same dish type will get grouped together. After this, starting with the dealer, each player is going to choose one of those groups of cards to take into their hand, and after every player has had their chance to select a card, any cards that remain on the table, with the exception of the dragon cards, which I'll come back to, any dishes that are still on the table get placed in front of the king. Which, interestingly, you actually use the box. You turn the box on its side, and it has a picture of the king on it, so it looks like he's at the right. head of the table. <laughs> the game ends once there's not enough cards left in the deck to refill the table to deal out the next set of cards. I should mention also that instead of taking a group of cards, players can also draw blindly off the top of the deck. Yep. We can edit that back in to be like I said that before. <laughs> at the end of the game, for each type of dish... Players are going to compare the number of cards that they have in their hand to the number of cards that are in front of the king. If the player has less than or equal to the number of cards that the king has, he's going to receive points equal to the number of cards that he has times the number of cards that the king has. Otherwise, if the player has more than the king, they receive nothing for those cards. Can't eat more than the king. Of course not. <laughs> Pigs. So the only other twist in this game is the dragon card. So there are several dragon cards throughout the deck, and as they come out, if a player chooses a dragon card, they get to discard that card immediately and take two dishes of their choice away from the king. And those cards will get discarded out of the game. They don't get to take them into their own hand. Fed to the dragon. <laughs> Fed to the dragon. And that's pretty much it. So I actually had a pretty hard time thinking up an intro question for this game because it is so simple. There's, <laughs> there's just not that much to it. I'm just going to throw out the generic question of what did you guys think about this game? Yeah. Go for it, Cameron. It's definitely a unique concept. In order to score, you have to both pick up certain cards and also not pick up those cards. Mm -hmm. So there's this balancing act where you need to act indirectly in order to get them to go to the king. So I kind of enjoyed that dance that you have to play. Yeah, I agree. Ideally, you want to have exactly the same number as the king, right? More to less, score yeah. maximum yeah. points. And so you're yeah. tiptoeing on what that line is or where you think that line is. 
But what I like about the game, and if this wasn't in the game, the game would be sorely missing something is the dragon, right? Mm -hmm. Because if people at the table are paying attention and they know that you're right on that line of having just enough to score that type of food and they take that dragon card and knock that down a couple, now all those cards are scoring nothing, right? So there's risk there and trying to score as much as possible. But if I get maybe too greedy, even if I don't go above the king, somebody can force me to go above him. Right. right, which is a cool component. Right, because there's no way to get rid of cards out of your hand. Once you've taken them, you've taken them. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was an interesting decision point, too. I think this game can really come down a lot to card counting. Mm-hmm. You know that there's exactly 15 cards of each type of dish, and if you're good at card counting, you could do really well in this game because you know what other people are going for. You know how many of a particular dish is left that's possible to come out. I think that can be really important. Yeah. I think one other interesting little tidbit, and I almost forgot to mention it in the rules, is the blind draw off the top of the deck. That's what I was just going to say, yep. Because in order to score a particular dish, you have to intentionally leave those cards on the table so they go to the king. Yeah. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to draw blind off the top of the deck because you're one less person who's taking from the center, Mm -hmm. right? There could, based on the way the cards come out and the way they get grouped together, there could only be four groups of cards in the center of the table. And if everybody takes from there, the king gets nothing. Right. right, that's very possible. I've seen that happen. So one of the best ways to ensure that is to draw blind. But when you draw blind, you never know what you're going to get. So you might get that one card that just tips you right over the top on some other dish that you were about to score really well in. That's also a, an interesting decision you have to make. <clears throat> yeah. So I think transitioning into cons, if y'all are ready to do that, sure. sure. Yeah. I think this game teases you with this fun idea of the king has four hands, so I'm going to try to get four of those. There's only two cheese, so I'll get two of those, and I'll get maybe five of these. But in my experience, and over the times that I played this game, I found that the game settled into a very predictable pattern. Mm -hmm. Maybe this was just me, but... I found it to be very safe to just try to get three of everything. Mm. And then once you get down to the end, play those dragon cards or pick up an opportunistic pickup to try to maximize your points as much as possible and then just hope for the best at that point. Did y'all experience that at all? Yeah, that was something I was going to mention too. It felt like when we played, the scores came out relatively even towards the end. There were very few people. Yeah, there were very few people who actually ended up losing cards because of going over. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because everybody eventually settles into that rhythm of, well, I'm just going to play it safe. I'm not going to go too hard after anything. And that tends to end up being right about the sweet spot of what you need after the dragons have all come out and everything else. Because if you start gobbling up something, if you grab a stack of four bread that come out on the table, everybody knows they're going to drag you have that. You to everybody's going to notice that, and they're just going to kill those cards. So everybody's playing the safe bet, and when everybody plays the safe bet, everybody's score is pretty much exactly the same, and you're off by one maybe at the end. So yeah, I saw that as a con. Yeah, there's not really an incentive to not at least dip your toe into one of whatever the king has. Right. right, because you know you're you know those are guaranteed at least it's not, one. Not good Anytime there's there's in other words, there's, I, I would argue really at a, least two, sure, at minimum. The game arc I think suffers. Yeah, I think that's kind of what we're saying. And I've thought a lot about that. Tried to figure out: Are we suffering from some sort of hive mind mentality where we're missing some strategy here? Some in our guild actually wrote a really thoughtful post about a review of money. I don't know if you guys saw that and how he felt like maybe we were falling into a hive mind mentality there, which is maybe why we didn't enjoy it as much. And he made good points. And I was trying to apply that to this game, but I just can't see how you can really play it any other way. Because if you think about how the game works, 
if everybody is collecting, let's say, two fruit, or at least some fruit, then pretty much everybody at the table is incentivized to see that fruit end up in front of the king, right? Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so... It's going to happen. Yeah. And if you're not incentivized to see the fruit end up in front of the king, there's nothing you can do to stop it unless you take it into your hand. Right. And now you're incentivized for it to go in front of you. You see what I'm saying? It's almost like the game is playing you. Maybe there is something to taking a strong group of like four cards early, letting people know that you have it, and just ensuring that you make sure more ham ends up in the king's plate, right? Because at that point, other people would have to be taking them to deny you, which means they're losing turns, sure. taking the cards that are going to benefit yeah. them. I don't know. There could be something to that. But I do think it seems to me like it would eventually run its course and end up in that equilibrium state. I think you make a good point there. And maybe that is a way to break out of that group thing. But the one thing that holds me back from that are the dragon cards, which I like. Mm-hmm. But if two or three people have four or five of a type in their hand, the other people playing the game at the table are just going to drag in that thing to death, (laughs) right? right? And you're not going to score it. I don't know. I have a hard time seeing how it works any other way, but I don't know. Maybe we were falling into high mind on that, but that was what I was seeing. Chime in on the guild if you've played this game and you (laughs) have experienced something different than we have. We'd love to hear about it. Yeah, yeah. Should we jump into final thoughts? Let's do it. Chris, you want to go first on this one? Yeah, I'll go first. So I've mentioned before that to me a good game is a game that when you play it on repeated plays it gets better for you. Like Cavum, for example. Mm. The more I played it, the better it got. The more richness I saw in it, the more I enjoyed it. Unfortunately, this was one of those games that just got worse and mm. worse. I was entertained by it the first couple of times we played it. I found some of the mechanisms interesting, but as we played it more and more, I began to settle into a style of play which to me felt to be optimal, and I just didn't see any other strategy that was viable. And we, mm-hmm. I mean, I played it seven or eight times at least. Mm-hmm. I didn't enjoy this game. I ended up giving this game a two. It just fell and fell for me. Lost interest after four or five plays. Bad right. game for me. We give it a two. Okay. I don't really have much else to say about King's Breakfast. I think it's got an ideal runtime. It's not a very long game, so it's not like this is some incredible investment or something like that, right? right? It's a small box, but for me, this one was just a meh. I give it a three. I don't think it's a bad game necessarily, but I don't love memory games with a big emphasis on attempting to track where my opponents are in order to know where I stand. I feel like that's the main mechanic in this game, and it's just not my favorite, so I'm going to go with the three. King's Breakfast is one of those games that seems to promise that magical mix of super simple rules and strategy that we are always looking for, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, this is such a simple concept. It could be amazing. But I think what you guys have said rings really true. I think it falls flat after a couple plays. I think you fall into a rhythm. Yeah. As a quick filler, it's not a horrible play, but there are so many other games out there that do the five to 10 minute long games so much better with so much more Mm -hmm. depth of thought. Yeah. For those reasons, I landed on a three, but I was between a two and a three with this one. I own it, so maybe that's why <laughs> I erred towards a three, but this one might be going to Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I could see why y'all would give it a three. I think the nail in the coffin for me, and this is for any game, it doesn't have to be simple, but if I find myself falling into repeating patterns of play over and over again because they just seem to be optimal, for me, that's when it transitions into bad territory mm. because then why am i even playing anymore yeah, you know yeah, what i mean yeah. i already know what i'm gonna do right. every time i sit down to play king's breakfast i'm like okay i'm getting three of everything <laughs> right yeah. and then okay we've got two rounds left now i'm just gonna try to pick up points and that's just how i play it every time and 
Yep. I, it usually works really well. Sure. Eh, don't like it. Well, now All you've right. convinced me. <laughs> <laughs> Two. <laughs> All right. Well, for those who perhaps want to give it a shot despite these reviews, where could we find King's Breakfast? Yeah, so if you want to give it a shot, and we always recommend people giving it a shot, good for families, kids even. It's in stock at Noble Knight, Gems 21, uh, get 10% off. There are also seven copies available in the BGG Marketplace as well. Well, there you have it. Those are our thoughts on Kingsburg. The Planetary Union of the Andromeda Galaxy wants wealthy traders from Earth to invest in their economy. To control such investments, they have allocated three orbiting economic centers above each of their most important planets for development by Earth interests. This keeps the humans off their planet and also creates competition among the traders interested in such development. The Planetary Union hopes this competition will bring them even more money for these investments. To keep the humans from conspiring amongst themselves to divide up the economic centers with secret agreements, the Planetary Union requires that all trades be done under their watchful eyes. They also have spies for probing secret negotiations away from the trading table. That was the most complex story ever <laughs> devised for such a simple game. <laughs> I was losing plot points as you were going. <laughs> Alan really likes his flavor text. Hey, I will say he at least gives it a good try. Material to work with, I know, right? right? You know, not like three sentences. I can appreciate that. <laughs> All right, Andromeda, Your Publication, 1999. Publishers: Abacus Spiele and Rio Grande Games. At the time of this recording, its BGG ranking is 3,140. It's pretty close to King's Breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> this game is a lot more involved than King's Breakfast. How did I hear about this one? I mentioned this earlier. So this one was on that top 10 list with Tom Vassell. So as I mentioned before, Oasis, he had his number six for his Alan Moon games, and this one was number nine. That's how I heard about this one. Brief rule summary for Andromeda. So Andromeda is a game of trading and area control. Does that sound familiar? You mentioned that in Oasis. Uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> there are some similarities here between this game and Oasis. They're, they're very different in a lot of ways, but there are some similarities that we'll touch on in a bit. Oh, and I do want to just briefly mention, I, I almost forgot it. This game was recommended by one of our guild members, Jonathan Takagi. So this review is for him. Thanks for the recommendation, Jonathan. All right, brief rule summary of Andromeda. I think to understand the rules, you need to understand what this board looks like. The game takes place in the Andromeda Galaxy. This is a fantasy galaxy, obviously, and you've got Earth. And then outside of Earth, you've got seven different planets. Around each planet you have three smaller satellite bodies that orbit around that planet. And what you're attempting to do in this game is you're trying to establish economic centers on those satellites that are orbiting around those individual planets to score points. That's the main way you score points in this game. There are other ways you can do it, but that's the main way. Mm -hmm. So the general idea is moving stations from Earth to planets, and then once those cubes are on the planets, you want to move them from the planet onto those satellites to score points. At the start of the game, some of your stations will be randomly divided amongst the planets, and then you'll get a starting hand of nine cards. The deck consists of planet cards. Each planet in the Andromeda Galaxy also has cards associated with it, and that's all that's on the card. It's just a picture of the planet. I'll explain what the cards are used for in just a moment. The game takes place over four different phases. The first phase is drawing up to your hand size. Then you'll move on to the second phase of the game, which is the transport cards. 
So everybody starts with two in front of them. And what these transport cards let you do is you can spend one of those cards, you discard it out of the game, and you can move two stations from Earth to any planet in the Andromeda Galaxy. Or you can pull all of your cubes from any planet back to Earth. Well, why would you do that? Because you need stations on planets to establish those economic centers. Well, every cube that's on Earth at the end of the game is worth a point. So you might have a planet that's not proving to be profitable or you don't think you're going to score points on. So you can pull those cubes back and score points that way. Then after that, we're going to go into a round of trading. So the way that this trading phase works, as opposed to Oasis, is that in this trading phase, you get to look at your hand of cards. You see what's being offered for trade. So the active player will begin the trading phase by placing a planet card face up to the table. So let's say he plays the yellow planet. Now everybody else at the table has to play a card to the table that they're going to offer in their trade, but it cannot be the planet card that the person who's the active player just placed face up. It has to be a different card. Then the active player will place a second card face up on the table. It can be the same type of planet or a different one. Now everybody else must select a second card to offer for trade, and it cannot be either of those two planets that the active player plays face up for trade. Once that's happened, the active player has the option of stopping and trading, or they can do that one more time. Once that's complete, then the active player will choose one of the offers available in front of the players in the game. They'll exchange their cards with that player, and then that player has the option of taking those cards and putting them into their hand. Or they can leave them out in front of them to try to trade with other players in the game. Once everybody's traded cards, we then enter the last phase of the game, the action phase. The active player gets three actions, everybody else gets two actions. You can do one of four things. You can increase your hand size. You can develop technologies which give you certain special abilities in the game. You can move cubes from Earth to a planet, and then you can attempt to establish an economic center on a satellite. The way that you do all this is by playing sets of cards to the table. So for example, if I want to increase my hand size, I can play a set of three planets that are all of the same type to the table, and that will allow me to bump my hand size up one level on that track. So now let's focus in on how you establish economic center, so that's the main point of the game. So let's say, for example, I play four yellow planet cards. I can move a number of centers from Earth to that planet equal to the number of cards divided by two. So I can move two cubes to the yellow planet. or I can attempt to establish a center. And the way that I do that is you take something that in board game circles is referred to as the cosmic ashtray. <laughs> or we like to call it the space pooper. And the way it works is it's a black plastic cup with a little bitty square hole in it, like a little barn door on there. And you put that cup on top of all the different cubes that are on that planet, your cubes and everybody else's that are there. You shake that cup up violently, mixing the cubes, and then you pull the pooper along until a cube comes out of it. If it's your cube, you score. You put that cube on the highest scoring satellite and you're done. If you didn't pull your cube out, that person's cube doesn't go on the orbiting satellite, it goes back to Earth. Then, depending on how many cards you played, you can maybe pull again. So similarly to how you move cubes from Earth, if you played four cards on that planet, you would divide by two, that would give you two pulls basically. So you have two chances to try to establish a center. And those are all the actions in the game. So it will go around and around like that until four planets are completely filled with cubes on their satellites. Whoever has the most points at the end of all that is the winner. All right, so as I mentioned, this game has a trading phase in it. Oasis also has a trading phase in it, and they share some similarities. How did you feel like this trading phase compared to Oasis? 
And how did you like it? Did you prefer it? Did you like it better? Did you not like it as much? How do you feel about trading in this game? Yeah, they're definitely both unique, although they do have that same feel to them. I will say I enjoyed the trading mechanic in this game more than I did in Oasis. And I think it's because of that randomness of the card flip. It felt like there was more control in this game. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas in Oasis, you're out of control from the beginning. The very first card you flip is a random draw. You don't know what it's going to be. In Andromeda, every card you place down is giving you a little bit more control over what other people can offer you, right? Because every card you play is a card you're saying, I don't want this, and I'm giving this to you. (laughs) Right. So I'm giving this card away because I don't want it, and I don't want this back from you. Yeah, I don't want these, yeah. And I thought that was really interesting. It took me a little bit to wrap my head around, okay, I'm offering cards to make sure that people don't give me this card. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I see this one a little bit differently. It's interesting by comparison because you're often dealing with a lot more cards Mm -hmm. than just the one to three in Oasis. And you're able to choose which ones you play down. But I think it can be more frustrating, particularly when you're not the lead player. You're not choosing which cards you don't want to receive. When you're on the other side of that and you're looking at the cards and you're trying to manage in your hand, I found it particularly painful frequently when a card would get played down and maybe I could play a card that I wasn't trying to hold on to and build up to a set but then as more and more cards come out the restrictions grow on what you're allowed to play down and get out of your hand so if someone plays a card that you want to get rid of because you don't care about it Mm -hmm. well you can't drop that one anymore and as the scope of what's allowed to be played gets pared down at least in my experience i feel like more often than not i was having to play cards out of sets that i was trying to build and that's frustrating because you're like, I'm trying to get five or I'm trying to get mm-hmm. a bunch of those. And then you just can't do it Yeah. because you have to play the cards. I felt like that was a painful and frustrating aspect to the trading phase. Whereas in Oasis, I felt like even though I didn't know what was on the cards, I could manage how many of the cards I was giving up. And I felt like I actually had more control in that aspect. Sure. I get what you're saying, but I think it is interesting that the game does give you an opportunity to mitigate that though, right? So increasing hand size. If you take that time to not try to establish centers or do other things, I'm just going to spend these three blue planet cards to increase my hand size, right? It can go up to 10, 11, and then all the way to 13. Mm Mm-hmm. So if your hand size is larger, the probability of somebody forcing you to trade out something out of your hand that you don't want to trade out markedly decreases. But you have to spend the time to do that, to protect yourself from that. It's a choice you've got to make, right? Yeah, I will say for me, for the trading phase, I like the trading phase in both of these games. I will say that I think I agree with Jason. I did prefer this trading phase slightly more for the same reasons. Similarly, like Jason mentioned, you do have a little bit more control. I did like the fun interaction you can have with the active player altering your offering based on what they're offering. Very similar to Oasis, this game is very much about trying to offer other people what you have to try to get what you want. In Oasis, you're making a good offer to try to get that first turn marker. Mm -hmm. But in this game, let's say Jason puts two yellow planets down in front of him, and I'm like, I want those. Well, I can look at the board, and I'm like, okay, Jason's got a lot of cubes on that planet. I know he's trying to score that planet. I'll put those type of planet cards down because I know he wants them. And that way, he's probably going to trade with me. So I'm getting what I want. He's getting what he wants. But you have to be careful about not helping somebody too much, right? Right. And that's a fun line. I want to help myself, but at this phase of the game, can I really afford to give Jason those cards, right? Yeah. I enjoyed that back and forth with the trading. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would say that was a big difference. Once again, I struggled with this mechanic until I learned a little bit more about how to play because I also want to play of this as well because of actually that exact thing that you mentioned of making observations of what we think that person is interested in and if you can afford to do so to hand them what they right, want. Right. So just to be clear, everything you do in this game in the action phase is based off playing sets of planet cards mm-hmm. of the same type of planet. So if you play four of the same type of planet to do anything. In addition to doing that action, you will get a wild card. That's the most basic one. It'll be worth two points at the end of the game if it's still in your hand, or you can use it as any other planet. If you're able to play seven of the same planet down, that wild card is worth five points at Mm -hmm. the end of the game. But you can still play it as a wild card if you wanted to, okay? You can also still get it snatched out of your hand by (laughs) someone. You can't have it. You can be forced to, to play it. Yes. You can. You can. And, and that's some of that fun in the trading phase, too, is making somebody get rid of that if you know their hand is not very diversified. But yeah, I, I did like that challenge, especially near the end of the game, of do I use this wild card to try to accomplish something on a planet, or do I just hold it for the points? Or maybe I've got two or three of them. Yeah. But again, that's risky because those wild cards are taking up space in your hand. So remember, at the end of each round, you don't draw a number of cards you draw up to a number of cards so if you had three wild cards or just three cards that are just taking up space in your hand if you have no intention of using them for anything other than scoring points cargo space in your ship perhaps? <laughs> cargo space in your ship that's right <laughs> and so it's a risk but a fun one if you can pull it off you could score good points that way i liked that about this game yeah i enjoyed that too so I think the elephant in the room with this game, which I'm surprised we haven't talked about it yet, the cosmic ashtray. Right? <laughs> the space so, pooper. The space pooper. So when you're <laughs> when you're trying to establish these planets, you're shaking randomly all the cubes on the planet and drawing one out and praying that it's yours. So what did you guys think about this aspect of it? Because obviously there's random chance. You have control over the probability to a degree, but it's still random. So what did you guys think about that? Yeah, I think as a gimmicky mechanism... I think it works well enough. It's actually pretty clever for such sure. a simple thing. Cover it with a cup, and then there's a little door there, and it pulls out. I think it was a neat idea. I think it works just fine. It's interesting in that if you don't pull your color out, whichever color does come out, you send back to Earth, thereby increasing right. your odds right. of being successful in the future. That's a cool idea. Yeah. However, it's hard to get those sets of planet cards. Mm-hmm. Okay. It takes time to accumulate those cards and to get enough to be able to give yourself at least two pulls to feel comfortable, depending on what your odds are, to try to pull your color out of there. And so I will say that while the mechanism is clever, from a gameplay satisfaction standpoint, if you go somewhere and you have like 60-70% odds and you don't come out of there, that is a crushing blow. Not to mention the fact that every cube you send back that's not yours is giving your opponent a point. A point, point. right. <laughs> so you're increasing your odds, but it just takes a lot of time to get back to the point to where you can try again. Yeah. Right? Like I think it, it makes those combination moves of, okay, I'm going to get the roundup technology and pack my cubes on that planet. Right. And then I'm going to go in and I'm going to have three pulls, so I'll send out two and then my odds will be even higher. Yeah. And then I'll really nail it down. Absolutely. You can certainly do things to almost ensure right. that you'll get it, but that takes time and work. Yeah. That's all just cards you're spending yep. to try to make that one thing happen for you. Yeah. Right. I feel like we've kind of covered cons. Should we I, move on to final? I have I have another one. Yeah, I have all one right. quick one. This is not a sixty minute game. 
It's not. Each of our plays went well over an hour. I think our first one was like over an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. I found it just kind of dragging on. And there are a lot of different things you can do in this game. And I think that that tends toward analysis paralysis, which obviously draws out the length of games. I think it could go faster. I think it would require several plays to get to that point, though. Yeah. And I don't know that that bodes well for this game. Yeah. I I agree with that. I do think maybe this game is too long Mm -hmm. for what it is. One other quick thing I wanted to mention is I mentioned in the rules that the active player gets three actions and everybody else at the table gets two, and that rotates around. But there's no mechanism or rule in place to ensure that everybody gets equal number of turns. And Mm -hmm. in all likelihood, everybody won't get Mm. equal number of turns. That is such a bad rule. Mm. That is such a bad rule. If you're in third or fourth position in a four-player game, you are at an extreme disadvantage. Mm. Because that one extra action can really matter. Sure. And that just makes no sense to me why he did that. I found in games it really made a difference from who won and who didn't. And I just didn't like it. I thought it was a bad rule. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, any other thoughts or do we move on to final thoughts? Let's do final thoughts. Cameron, why don't you lead off this time? All right. I wanted to like this game. I hated Andromeda after my first play. It was the longest run we had for sure, and I really didn't understand the value of being picked first and being able to be in a position to collect the cards that you want. I think I even won one play. Ultimately, the runtime of this game kind of killed it for me. The pace of this game left me feeling meh about it. That never really feeling like I had the same kind of control that you guys mentioned with the trading phase. Mm-hmm. Even in the game I won, I felt like I was just playing odds the whole time and taking what I felt were my best chances. And it just wasn't particularly satisfying for me. So, unfortunately, I've got to go with a three for Andromeda. Like I say, I wanted to convince myself to just give it a four, but I just don't think I can in good conscience do that. I don't think it's a bad game. It just doesn't excite me. Mm. So for me, there were a lot of things I liked about this game. I really enjoyed the trading phase in this game. Like I mentioned, I enjoyed it more than I did in Oasis. The managing of your tech and your hand size versus trying to decide if you're just going to try to establish economic centers, I felt like was a good decision. I enjoyed the space theme. I enjoyed the art. There were just a lot of things I really liked about this game. However, the one thing that was a big sticking point for me, and it's a huge one, was this idea of... I can quote unquote do all the right things. I can get the tech I need. I've got the planet cards I need. But at the end of the day, if your cube just doesn't come out of that Mm -hmm. door, you're not going to win. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad you mentioned this, Cameron. For a game that can be as long as this can be, it can be very frustrating to spend a lot of time and a lot of turns setting yourself up for success and then not being successful. In Oasis, as I mentioned, because the cards are flipped so many times, I feel like the randomness kind of balances out. In this game, if you fail on establishing an economic center twice, it's over for you. You're done. Because you've wasted so much time. Right, because it takes so long to get your hand back to a point to where you can even try again. And by that time, everybody's left you. (laughs) It always felt like the people whose colors came out the most, regardless of whatever else was happening in the game, one. Yeah. You got like the top technology, I think, in every play that I played with you. Yeah. You and, always had that, that round and thing. didn't win. And I then there were some it. games where I never went technology and just tried to get pulls and it just kept coming down to they just weren't coming out. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. for me, for a game that's as long as this, with as much investment as this, trying to set yourself up for success and then having that crushing blow. Yeah. 
it killed it for me. And I really, really wanted to like this game. Because there are a lot of things I like about it. So for me, I'm giving it a 3. I'm going to get rid of this one. I just can't tolerate that in a game where I put so much effort in and then that happens. Mm -hmm. You know, It just didn't do it for me. Yeah, I think I would echo a lot of the things you said, Chris and Cameron. I think I enjoyed a lot of the aspects of this game, too. I definitely liked the bidding phase more than Oasis. I enjoyed the push-your-luck element of the space pooper. I think <laughs> the, the boldness that it takes, even if the odds are against you, mm-hmm. just go for it and see if you can yeah. see if you can get it to turn your way. I liked that part of it. But for a game this length, that's something that fits a game like Ink and Gold. Right. It's like you push your luck. Yeah. If it doesn't pan out, it's a 15, 20-minute game. Right. You reset and you start again. Mm-hmm. For a game with this much investment and this much time, it just doesn't fit. I found myself wishing that I could take the bidding mechanic from this game and combine it with the more puzzly, deterministic nature of the board play in Oasis yeah. and mash them together mm-hmm. to get a good game. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not there. And so, for me, I settled on a three as well. At least we're consistent there. Yeah, it's a bummer. And I think you make good points. I don't like it personally, but I guess it's neat that the idea of the Hail Mary play is there because it does allow everybody to feel like they're in it, I guess. And I do wholeheartedly believe that some people would like this game. Sure. I think if you like push-your-luck style games, I could see you liking this game. But for the reason I mentioned, it's not for me, but some could like it if you like that style. So I want to say one more thing before we sort of wrap up final thoughts on Andromeda. And and that is that I'm kind of looking at the landscape of the games and our reviews and the ratings that we've handed out in this episode. And it's not a lot of great numbers. And I think that it's important to point out in an episode like this is that this is what we do on this show. Mm -hmm. We grab games off the shelf. We pick a theme. We pick a designer. And a designer who has a great reputation and a ton of amazing titles under his belt. And we certainly do not want to leave this episode that's highlighting Alan Moon's games with any type of a tone that suggests that we don't feel like he's a great designer. It's just we grabbed a selection of his games and we said we're going to make these hit the table. We're going to do our best and most honest reviews on these games and we're gonna leave it in the show we've got a lot of ideas alan moon has a ton of games we intend to probably explore some more of those he'll get more so please anyone out there that's listening don't take this as oh well the hidden gems guys don't like alan moon that is not (laughs) what we want anybody to take away from this episode we picked three games we played them as much as we could in the time that we had and these are our thoughts yeah. So just, well, hey, you just, loved Oasis. Dude, I loved Oasis. And so I liked it too. I just know that a lot of times we do these designer spotlights and you do look at like Stefan Dora and it's like fives all hand and on and Chris is like six and you know, <laughs> star eyes emoji about Hellas and stuff. And it just didn't happen in this set of games. There's a lot more that we yeah. can choose from in the future and hopefully we'll get some time to do that. Well, it's like Jason always says, it's about the search, right? Absolutely. Kind of like what we're doing. Did yeah. I take yeah. that out of your mouth? You're going to look at your game. I was going to say that. But, <laughs> you know, sometimes we find the sixes and sometimes we don't, but that doesn't necessarily make these bad games. Sure. Despite Chris giving King's Breakfast a two. <laughs> it, it's bad. <laughs> I enjoyed my plays of all these games and I enjoyed the experience of trying them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Would I, a fun thing. would I keep any of these games for the rest of my life and play them regularly? Probably not. But I enjoyed the experience of trying them. 
I think it's always worth trying out new things. And if these games sound like they would interest you, if they sound like they're up your alley, like by all means, give them a shot. There is that aspect, and that's what we love about this exploration process and why we think that our listeners hopefully will come along with us and keep exploring new games. For sure. Yep. Did I talk about where we can find this game? No, we needed, We still need to hit that one. <laughs> we got all soapboxy. We did, we, we did. We forgot to talk about where you can find Andromeda. This game is in stock at Noble Knight for anywhere between 40 to $45. Because some of these are used, they have grades, so there's a range there, but you can get it at Noble Knight. Jim's 21. Gems 21. And then there are 41 copies on BGG as well, if you want to give it a go. Sounds good. Those are our thoughts on Andromeda. And of course, thank you for joining us on this Alan Moon special episode of Hidden Gems. If you like what we're doing here, please remember it's a huge help for us if you would leave us a rating or review on your podcast platform of choice, particularly Apple Podcasts, and follow us on our various social media platforms. You can check us out at our BGG Guild if you want to interact with us or share a game that you think is a hidden gem. And if you're so inclined, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash hidden gems podcast. Until next time, I'm your host, Cameron. This is Chris. I'm Jason. Thanks for listening. This episode of Hidden Gems, number 14, was recorded in Raleigh, North Carolina on August 16, 2021. Join us again in two weeks to hear some spicy conversation about ruthless gameplay and hurt feelings when we talk about three vicious abstract strategy games. Hidden Gems is produced and edited by Chris Alley, Cameron Lockie, and Jason Yonchleff. Our Board Game Geek Guild is monitored and managed by honorary Hidden Gems team member Ghidorah. Our show's logo was illustrated by designer and artist Caitlin Nieto. Check out her work on Instagram at It's Caitlin Nieto. We would love to hear from you. Feel free to join the discussion on our many social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook at Hidden Gems Board Game Podcast, Instagram at hiddengems.podcast, and Twitter at Hidden Gems Board. Disagree with one of our reviews? Have something you want to say about one of the games we reviewed today? You can also make your voice heard on our Board Game Geek Guild at boardgamegeek.com. Guild number 3874. Once again, thank you for joining us on Hidden Gems, and until next time, fellow gem seekers, enjoy your games and enjoy your search. I'm supposed to pass it off to you, and I forget why. Esports. Yeah. So, Chris, what have you had going on in your life lately? Yeah, Let me do so, that again. That was yeah, dude, awkward. What though. are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Loosen up, Jason. That was a terrible transition. <laughs> so, Take another so, sip. So, so Chris, what's, what the, what, what's you what, what's you doing? <laughs> so how's it going, Chris? <laughs> Try again.